Hello, food world. It's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend, with another outstanding episode of Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who does something a little bit different. We're going to talk to a taste expert. Somebody who's going to tell us more about the science and the art of not only discerning the different elements of the things we taste, but how different factors surrounding taste combine to give us a more enjoyable food experience, whether we're cooking at home or dining out in a restaurant. We're talking to Mandy Nagrich from New York City. Here's Mandy. Yeah. Okay, we're here with Mandy Nagrich, is it? Yeah, that's great. Okay, good. I got the pronunciation correct. I always like to start giving people a little idea of why you're here, because obviously I know what your credentials are, but the four or five people out there listening don't. So can you fill them in on on, on what you and I know and they don't? Sure. Yeah. I'm the author of How to Taste, which comes out June 27th. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this, it's already on store shelves. I'm a certified taster in advanced disrone. I have my W set in spirits and my certified cider professional. And I use all of those qualifications as a food and beverage journalist, as well as a beverage consultant. Right. You also have what a national homebrew gold medal and yeah, several Rises. National Homebrew Gold Medals. The 2016 National Homebrew Competition, when I won that competition, really kicked off my trajectory into this current career. I came from the background of entertainment marketing. Sure. Uh, you're also an Axios certified test taster, right? Can, yeah, can you tell? Can you tell? Can you tell people a little bit how that works? I mean, how do, how does a person? You don't exactly go to school and come to career day and like. I want to be a certified taster. So fill people in. Yes, Aroxa is an work. incredible company. They certify a lot of people who do quality assurance tastings. So things like companies making sure that their products taste consistent, things from beer, cider, wine, dairy, even packaged foods. So they certify tasters to be on those quality assurance panels as well as consult and work in different industries. So what what it basically is, is we're being tested on a bunch of compounds that are used as spikes in things like water, beer, milk. What you need to be able to do to be a certified taster is identify those compounds at very low thresholds in, you know, random cups of different liquids. So getting 60 cups in front of you, being able to say what compounds or combinations of compounds are used to spike those cups and being consistent enough to earn certification. I only missed one cup on my last, my final test to get Well, one out of 60, so. that's not bad. Yeah, well, and it's actually one out of like 340-something. Um, well, that's even better. they, yeah, do a lot of panels on us. So that's how you how you do it. My tongue is certified on a lot of different compounds. So Sure, sure. You know, I think that's one thing that I wanted to get in today because it's, I certainly know a very small fragment of what you know about tasting. When you go to taste wine, for instance, I know you swirl it around your tongue so that you hit all the different flavor receptors. Uh, mm-hmm. But I know from reading your book, that I don't even have half that part down because there's, there, there's, there's more to even, what is it? I don't know whether, I, I've been struggling if, what are, to call them phases, techniques. You, you have it broke down into, what is it, seven different parts of the tasting process? Yeah, I call them seven, the seven-step tasting method. 
I named them all S's just so they are, you know, <laughs> a little more catchy. But yeah, there's so much that happens, you know, as far as tasting before wine ever, wine or anything ever hits your palate. So I think that's something that I really wanted to emphasize in the book was the way that your room you're tasting in is set up, how what you're tasting looks all affects what you end up tasting. Yeah. Can you can you go into a little bit of that? Because I know scientifically they talk a lot about the more the majority of your sense of taste actually has to do with your sense of smell. Yeah, there's not a total consensus on the, the percentage, but it's some scientists say up to 90 percent of what we taste is aroma. No one goes lower than 75 percent. Basically, your taste buds or really your taste receptors can only sense five things. We know the basic tastes sweet, salty, umami, sour, and what one am I missing? Sweet, salty, umami, sour. It's another bitter. S. Oh, bitter. There you go. <laughs> the one that the big one. There's other people who are trying to prove that we have other basic tastes, things like carbonation, fat, and metallic, but the mechanism isn't really there yet. So other than those five things, all other flavors that you think you're tasting are filled in by aroma. So, you know, an orange tastes sweet and sour, but if you're getting that floralness of an orange blossom or the thing that intangible citrus flavor that makes a blood orange a little different than a caracara orange those are all things that are coming from our aroma receptors not our taste receptors well, so and there, there are other things involved too i have an 18 year old grandson and a couple three years ago when he was starting getting more interesting culinary type things i was trying to explain to him things like texture and whatnot mm -hmm. how, how does that impact our our tastes. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of things about texture and mouthfeel that will change how you taste. One is definitely sound, something like a snap or a crunch. We think things taste much better. The also They also seem fresher to our taste buds because a very fresh vegetable will have a, quite a snap to it. All of its cell walls are very tight with water from it being quite fresh. That snap is really appealing to people and we think things taste better when there's a snap. A crunch creates interest, especially on American palates. Mouthfeel is really important, whereas places like in Asia, they actually prefer a much smoother, what they call a tongueable mouthfeel. So things that are custardy, jelly. You might notice going into an Asian bakery how many of their confections are basically a gel. That's very appealing to them. Whereas the American palate, we like, you know, puffed rice and things that are very crunchy to keep our interest. So definitely mouthfeel and the culture you come from goes into everything that you're tasting. Oh, I, I, I get that entirely. In fact, I have a, uh, an independent restaurant not mm -hmm. that far from here. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting because they have a Greek side of their menu and they have an American side of the menu. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the American side of the menu with their hot dogs and their chili dogs and whatnot, they're, they're very high quality wieners they use in these and they have uh -huh. the natural casings. <laughs> the snap to it. And there is just something incredibly satisfying. You bite down into that hot dog and you have that snap from the from the natural casing, and uh, it goes into something else you talk about in the book as as far as flavor is almost more than just the taste because flavor is really what empowers the whole enjoyable aspects of, totally of, of the dining experience. Right. I mean, it's everything from what you see around you. I think people don't realize how much sound actually has an influence on our flight, on what we're tasting. The corda tympani nerve, which connects our mouth to our brain, literally <laughs> runs through our inner ear. So sure. as those messages are going from your tongue to your brain, anything that's jostling that inner ear, any loud music or soft music is 
changing those taste messages that are being sent to your brain. So sound actually has a huge impact on what we're tasting. And we don't really realize that. Obviously, what you see, something can be super delicious, but if it doesn't look tempting, it's always not, it's not going to taste quite as good as it could. So everything really goes into what we consider flavor. And then what we turn that flavor into is a sensory memory that we really hold on to for a long time. Those are some of the last memories that we have even when people are going into things like dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that, because they're kind of coded differently than language-based or other sensory memories. What kind of difference, I mean, you and I were talking before we went live, so to speak, that I'm mostly a food guy, you're mostly a beverage person. How, How different is it when you go to, say, tasting food versus tasting a beverage or even tasting wine versus beer, for instance? Is it, so, is it all kind of the same or is there, are there differences? How does, that, how does that work? Yeah, it's definitely all very similar. Obviously, there's different ways to release aroma compounds from a liquid versus solid. For in the seven-step method, if you're tasting a liquid, you'll swirl to release those aroma compounds where in a solid, something like a cheese, a chocolate, honestly, anything, your carrot sticks you're eating, you'll do the snap in order to release those aroma molecules. But really the way that you taste everything is... It should be the same. And it's just putting a little bit of thought into those different steps. But yeah, anything from honey to wine can all be tasted using the same method. Sure. Okay, let's let's move on just a, just a little bit. If somebody wanted to be a better taster, mm-hmm. is there, is there I, don't, I don't want to give up too much of what's in the book because we want people, of course, to buy the book. But are there, are there one or two tips you give, give people how to, how to be a better taster? Sure. And yeah, there's so much in this book that I I don't feel worried that we'll give too much of it away. There's way more than we could cover. But yeah, I think the first thing is just using a little bit of focus. You know, so often we're talking to everyone at the table, even if we're eating something really delicious, we're not really focused on what we're eating. We're looking at the room, we're talking to someone. Hopefully we're not scrolling on our phones, but a lot of people are. (laughs) So the first thing is just really focusing and, you know, reminding yourself that if I want to turn what I'm eating or drinking into a sensory memory, I just need a little bit of focus to do that. So that's definitely the first thing that I would say. And the second is being curious and allowing yourself to be surprised. I know there's a lot of people who get nervous about trying something new, but one of the best ways to expand your kind of what I call like your mental flavor library in the book is to ask someone like a server or the person you're dining with to surprise you with your order. You know, it's easy to just do like a drink just because it's a little less of an investment in both money and, you know, the percentage of your dinner. But asking them to order something new for you, don't tell you what it is. See if you can figure out what's in the glass. See if you like it. Because I think a lot of times we have these preconceived notions about certain ingredients or certain styles and that we don't like them. And then when you try it blind, not only do you, may you find that you like it, but it's also something that will really stick in your memory of having that experience of being a little bit surprised by what you're tasting. Yeah. And I think, I know growing up, my mother always said, excuse me, that your taste changes over time too. Definitely. As you expose yourself to more things, your taste will change. And one of the most apparent shifts in our palate as we age is just that our sensitivity to bitterness goes away a little bit. When you're young, you know, if you're very small, a bitter plant usually signifies that it is poisonous and a a little bit of a bitter plant when you're very young could kill you. Whereas when you're older and, you know, an adult, you can have a little bit of the plant and it won't kill you. So that's literally just our instincts and the way that we are biologically. That bitterness sensitivity does go down a little bit, but 
other than that, we're really in control of our tastes and what we're sensitive to. So I, I talk about in the book, one of the best tasting panel trainees on, in Aroxa is, I think she's 72, but like as far as accuracy and threshold and everything. So it's really something that you can train yourself to be very good at, no matter what age or where you are. Well, yeah, and I think, I think that you'll agree that the training aspect of it is, is a big thing. One of the things you talk about in the book is how if your mother is more adventurous cuisine-wise and flavor-wise and whatnot when she's carrying you, then you as a, a, even a child or an adult would be more adventurous. That also plays into what I've said for years about how people's ideas of what things should taste like or the way they should be prepared is anchored in what they ate growing up. Definitely. It's definitely something that you can overcome as an adult. So something, you know, if you're a picky eater as a child, once you tell yourself that you're going to be more adventurous, it's very easy to open your palate. As far as the studies based on mother's diet and the child in the womb, it's really about facial expressions. So it's if you're a very adventurous eater as a mother, when they feed their infants new foods, the ones who had more adventurous eaters for mothers when they were in the womb, tend to smile and try new things and not really repel them. Whereas people who they were stuck, you know, stuck to a very simple diet or something very straightforward, they tend to make faces and not be as open to trying new foods, even when they're an infant, which is really interesting. Well, I think people underestimate the importance of that too. I can remember when my oldest grandson was first on solid food. He's basically an adult now, so he's to some extent on his own, uh, but we used to have an issue where, like all little ones, he would not eat. I mean, he mm -hmm. would little clench his little mouth shut. And not happening. Yeah, we take the spoonful of food and and wave it over my plate, so he thinks it comes off my plate. All of a sudden, mouth comes open. He's he's, he's <laughs> he can't get it down fast enough. Oh, well, well, no. If it came off Papa's plate. Yeah, and then well, it must be delicious. I, I think the I think the example of not just parents, but all the people around them, particularly when people are small, does affect their mental concept of what tastes good and what tastes bad. You were talking about bitter a while ago. The interesting thing is there are cuisines around the world where they actually like bitter tasting food. And they actually seek it out. Whereas yes. in America, even as adults, we tend to avoid bitter tasting food. Well, I think the trend in everyone loving Negronis would speak differently to that in IPAs. But uh, so the thing that's interesting about bitter is it is the basic taste that we have the most receptors for. There's up to 150 different kinds of bitterness we can taste. So while there are certain types of bitterness that people might seek out, there's definitely in us, all humans biologically, a little bit of a, that we repel bitterness, certainly. You have to, it's something that you have to grow into. It is kind of, you know, our taste buds are there as danger detectors to make sure anything's not rotten and not poisonous. Sure. But yeah, different cultures. And I go into that in the book as well, especially like Indian cuisine, having a lot of sourness to it, people eating tamarind kind of as a treat, which is quite sour to other cultures. They, sure. it's in everything from, you know, their soups to their candies. So Definitely your cultural background will affect what you think is delicious, but it's not something 
any way that you can't overcome. I was a quite picky eater. I'm qualified as a super taster genetically, which means I taste everything very intensely, especially bitterness. So I was quite picky growing up. It wasn't until I got into college and wanted to be interested in the food world that I started eating anything other than like buttered shrimp and pasta. So (laughs) it's definitely something you can overcome no matter your background, no matter what, yeah, how picky you were, if you are interested in it. Our palates are quite flexible and we can actually see the changes in our brain, especially our olfactory bowl, happen in a matter of weeks when you start focusing on smelling, tasting, and trying new things. That That's the big thing that I like about what you're doing, particularly with this book, is that I don't think, going back to what I said about people's ideas of how things should be prepared and, and what they should taste like being impacted by what they ate growing up, I don't think most people understand the range of opportunity there is in our palates. I, th- I think I think that too many people feel like their their palates are locked in and they either like stuff or they don't like stuff. In particular, I can remember the first time that I ate lamb, for instance. Mm-hmm. Hated it. <sighs> Turned out the people that I ate the lamb that I that I ate the that cooked the lamb that I ate the first time didn't even know how to cook lamb. Yeah, definitely. And then, then I go to a Greek restaurant where they cook the lamb like 18 times an hour. And I'm like, where's this been all my life? <laughs> but, but you have to you have to push yourself outside your your comfort zone to where you can take advantage of those kinds of opportunities. And I think that's also a factor. I was speaking online, I believe it was with Simon Mujumdar. Mm-hmm. actually. And he was talking about, would anybody try a certain dish from, from other countries? Because he, of course, with the resources he has available to him, especially he travels the world extensively and, and engages in all these different cultures and cuisines and things. And he was asking about this one, would people try this one dish from, from another country? And the thing I was telling chef was, I said, I would, if you made it, because <laughs> I'm I'm a lot more adventurous about trying new flavors or trying new dishes if they're prepared by somebody that I know is preparing them properly. Just like I was talking about with lamb, because I've been disappointed so many times over the years where I try something for the first time and it was prepared by somebody that didn't really know how to make that dish or what have you. And it was a very unpleasant experience. Whereas if I had tried that dish prepared by somebody who knew what they were doing with that dish, that cuisine, et cetera, I probably would have been eating that particular dish a lot more years because it would have been like, oh my God, you know, I need this. Yeah, definitely. So I think definitely the way we taste things, it's uh, you're much more likely to taste something new and enjoy it in an environment you feel comfortable. So to your point, it might be that you know the shop or you know that they are good at what they're doing. Other people, it's just that you feel safe. It depends that the restaurant seems clean. Things like that definitely change what we taste as well. Sure, sure. And of course, like in my case, back in history, I've done restaurant reviews of restaurants here in the here locally. Haven't done any lately, but I have in years past. And and one of the things you have to be careful about doing that is being in a restaurant that's run by somebody that you know and that you like, because you as a journalist understand that 
you have to work on your objectivity and make sure that you're not prejudiced by your relationship with the the chef or the owner of the restaurant or or something like that. So I can definitely see where that would impact your flavor perception. Yeah, definitely. Before we get too far, I, I want to get into the book specifically, the How to Taste book, which is coming out, I'm trying to count days, what, Monday? Tuesday. Tuesday. That book, is that is that something that people are going to be able to walk into a bookstore and buy? Is it something they need to get off Amazon? How do they get their hands on this book? Yeah, it's pretty much everywhere books are sold. A lot of small specialty bookshops, but obviously your Barnes & Nobles, Targets, Walmarts, all of that will have it. Amazon, of course. And yeah, it's always great if your specialty bookshop doesn't have it to ask for it. Sure. I live in New York City, so all, a lot of our local bookshops have it, but I know it's actually, you know, Bermuda's bookshop has it. So there's definitely, definitely tiny bookshops that are stocking in it as well. But if they don't, they'll easily be able to get their hands on it for you within a couple of days. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm trying to think, but trying to remember what it's, it's not a big book, but it's not a small book either. So it's, it, I, I want to kind of encourage people from that standpoint because it's, it's, it's not like this is, this is, very much a deep dive in the subject. It's not, we'll see, well, four parts, 12 chapters. That's what it was. So it's yeah, not- and each chapter definitely covers its own topic. So if people aren't interested in things like, say, judging, they can easily skip that chapter if they don't want to learn about it. I thought it was one of the more interesting chapters in the book as a judge, just for people to understand, you know, you see a bottle of wine with a gold medal on it. What does that actually mean? What is it like? behind the scenes when we're judging things like that. Or if you're, we have some top chef judges on there as well, talking about those kind of things. So that's really interesting, but definitely each chapter focuses on its own topic and you can skip around and enjoy the book in whatever order you'd like to. I know a lot of people skip straight to the book, to the chapter on travel. So if you're planning your summer vacation, you can skip right to chapter 10. Well, yeah, I, you know, my biggest thing when I was reading it was that, well, there's two things, really. One, it's like, I'm going to have to go back and read this much more slowly and much more carefully <laughs> because there's, there's so much stuff in here. It's like, this is, this is a book I want to spend some time on. And the other thing, yeah, exactly. the, the other thing is, in fact, the, the most recent interview we got posted on this podcast now is with my friend Keith Saracen out of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm who wrote a, a book my wife gave me for Christmas, actually. And it's, it's about meat. Mm-hmm. Anything and everything about meat you want to know. So that's thick. Nice. <laughs> Big book. How to cook it, how to buy it, how to butcher it. But cool. I don't want to go too far in a, in a different direction. My point is that one of the things I was telling Chef Keith was that his book is not a book that, you read once and you put away and it gathers dust on the shelf and then you donate it to the library or, or whatever. And to me, your book is the same kind of book. This is a book that I'm going to want. It's not going to go too much further away than it is now, I don't think, because this is a book that I'm going to want to refer back to a lot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the idea is that you pull out chapter four whenever you want to, when you have something special that you want to taste and you can just follow the steps all over again. Well, well, that or uh, you mentioned judging. One of the things that interested me when I saw the publicity about the book was the judging aspect, because that's one thing that I'm wanting to 
get more into here locally, especially as a way to help some of the local nonprofit groups and whatnot is, is chosen some of these, these food contest fundraisers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I, I can, I can thoroughly see myself, you know, I got a contest coming up, pulling down the book and going, okay, what was it Mandy said about <laughs> yeah, definitely. when you're judging, <laughs> refresh my memory. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, we're getting, we're getting pretty close on time. Is there one or two more points that you wanted to cover before we wrap everything up or? I mean, yeah, I guess I would just say the whole, the point of the book, it's not to become, you know, a whiskey connoisseur or an olive oil connoisseur. It's really about getting to know your taste, your sense of taste and smell generally and how they can change your life. So like I said, covers everything from the science of how taste works in our brain to at the very end, the relationship between our taste and smell and our health. Something that people are a little bit more aware of post-COVID, I would say, but it's really very much tied to memory disorders and living a long, happy, healthy life. Keeping your sense of smell up to top notch is really important. Sure, sure. And I, I think that's a big part of the message is a lot of people would think that this book is for professionals, so to speak, mm -hmm. but there are books on tasting for professionals. And one exactly. of the things I like about your book is your book is, sorry, excuse me again. Your book is more oriented toward bringing those professional level skills down to your average wine lover or your average person that likes eating out at a good restaurant once or twice a month or things like that. And yeah, definitely. I, I wanted it to be like super approachable. Anyone who's interested in food or drinks of any kind to be able to take something away from it and. Hopefully, you know, give you some good stuff to talk about at dinner parties and stuff, too. I wanted to have a lot of good, fun facts, takeaways throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's like I was thinking before you came on early, I was thinking about, of course, I've read the book. I've got it sitting right here, even though it doesn't go on sale till Tuesday. I actually have a, a an author friend. Mm -hmm. If I remember right, she's on her 147th published novel. Wow. And I've, I've been Amazing. lucky enough to help her on some of her books. And I've teased my friends for once or twice about, they'll talk about what a good book some of them are. And I'll be like, yeah, that was a good book. And they're like, how do you know? It just came out yesterday. I'm like, <laughs> you wait till books come out to read them? Yeah, that's definitely a great, great thing that you have. Great access to new stuff. It, it, it is. But that's why I like doing this podcast because not necessarily stuff like that but I, I get to talk to great food people like yourself mm -hmm. and my listeners learn things i learn things you know it's always great it's, it's, it's really great yeah and uh, i really do appreciate your perspectives on tasting it's i like i say i really like that idea of bringing down those skills to to people who are not necessarily professionals in the business even though people who are professionals in business certainly need to get their hands on your book because they can still benefit. Definitely. I mean, we don't think that you have to be a professional musician to appreciate music. Like no one would ever say that. But for no. some reason, this idea of like being a good taster or being thoughtful about taste, all of a sudden people think you need some kind of certification or to be a chef. And that's certainly not the case. No, no. And I, that's one of the reasons I was interested in doing this interview and the other part of it is, I, I just think it's a, a skill set that a lot of people just aren't aware of. Definitely. 
They they from, they, from they think that, they think, like anything else. They think that you put stuff in your mouth and it tastes like it tastes. It's certainly a lot more complicated than that. And uh, I appreciate you clarifying and and amplifying all of our knowledge on, on that subject. Definitely, I'm excited to bring taste to everyone who's interested in it for sure. Uh, you got one more quick last thought. I guess if anyone wants to learn more about the book or certain people in it, howtotastebook.com is the website. It also has some companion media for different chapters in the book. And then I'm on Instagram and TikTok and everywhere else as Drinks with Mandy or How to Taste Book. So people can go learn, ask me questions. You know, there's a contact form on the website. So I'm just excited to hear what people think and definitely people want to dive deeper on any of the topics from the chapters i am here as are a lot of people who are interviewed in the book thank you once again mandy yeah thank you so much for having me this was fun thank you mandy i bet we all know more about tasting than we ever did before for more content like the interview we just had with with mandy be sure and Check us out at www.learnmoreeatbetter.com and even better, help us to keep going and growing by visiting our support page at www.ko-fi.com slash Crutchfield Cooks. Thank you. Until next time.